I thought before the message this morning, one of the things that we as a church might do as our country goes into a very um, crisis-filled week is to pray. And so I would invite us to have just a few moments of uh, very specific prayer for our national leaders. As a church, we bring them before the Lord. Let's go to prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for the mystery of prayer, where when we Christians feel we must do something, that your word tells us prayer is the most significant work we can do. So we leave our president, his family, our Congress, this nation in your hands. And they're good hands, and you've guided us in the past. We pray you'll guide us now in the present and future. And now, Lord, in these next few moments, also prepare our minds and hearts for the truth of your word that nourishes us, encourages us, and gives us a mandate. We pray we'll hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Tuesday night, Mark McGuire made baseball history. I don't follow baseball too closely, but I did watch that particular moment, and I found myself flooded with emotion the moment that ball went into oblivion. I was, I was filled with emotion, particularly by what happened afterward. If you were watching it, I, I saw three scenarios that were impressive. First, the praise from members of both teams that came and undergirded Mark for his moment. That all competition sort of dropped, all egos about their own importance dropped, and they all just flooded around Mark McGuire and praised him for a historical accomplishment. I don't often see people kind of forgetting about themselves that often. And then when Mark McGuire climbed into the bleachers and went and hugged the Ramirez family, being sensitive of all the emotions that must have been going through their minds about their dad and about his record being broken. And I thought Mark was sharing his moment of glory with them. And that was significant. But maybe the most impressive thing to me was the 17-year-old groundskeeper who found the ball. And some say it could have been worth a million dollars. And he had told his mom previously that if he ever by chance found that ball, he was going to give it to Mark McGuire, that it belonged to him. And that's exactly what he did. And he said, my reward was to shake Mark McGuire's hand. These scenarios, to me, reveal the very generous, selfless spirit that is still alive in the hearts of people. Where some persons will put the well-being of others ahead of their own interests where nice sentiments aren't just left as sentiments, but they're translated into real acts of self-giving love. And, and that sort of raised the issue of our text today. Because here, Paul, as we go into this study of Philippians, calls Christians an interesting name. He calls us saints. And a saint we traditionally associate with someone super holy, a Mother Teresa, a Francis of Assisi, a super moral person who kind of walks at a different level than we could ever even dream of walking. But you know, in the Bible, sainthood is something very different. Sainthood is not a title of moral purity, it's a job description. And it refers to a lifestyle in which the needs of others 
become a greater priority than our own because we've met Jesus Christ. It's a lifestyle that rejects what I'm calling today the reservoir mentality of living to acquire, to store, to consume, and we exchange it for Christ's mentality of being a channel by which the blessings Jesus gives to us flow through us and touches the needs of our neighbor. Robert Bork in his book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, states that a spiritual revival in America among the churches could change society. And what he meant by that is he felt the church alone possesses the power to enable people to break free from self-interest, self-indulgence, which he feels is a primary disease of American society. Perhaps the self-giving dramas of last Tuesday night on a baseball field, if repeated, in millions of ways in the lives of Christians as we go about our daily walk, it could have an impact. It could change self-indulgence, preoccupation with self to Christ-like serving of others. So I want to look at our text. And I, I want us to consider a title that really is more correct. And that is the text calls us servant saints. And, and, and I want us to think about what that might mean for you and for me this new year. First, we become saints as the result of knowing Jesus as our Savior. That is where it begins. The text begins to say, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi or in Menlo Park. Last week, Jay talked about why we should become a Christian, and he gave a long, good list. And I'd add just one more. I would say that we become a Christian because that's a necessary prerequisite to becoming a servant saint. And... If you think with me a moment, you'll understand why. How many of us are naturally prone to get involved in people's needs? Really involved. That it's sort of like an involuntary reaction. Philip Yancey perhaps is more honest when he says, it may be more blessed to give than to receive, but it's also more draining. And we know that. And that's why we have a tendency to talk about in church, giving love and doing things for people, but... Uh, talk and walk often don't coincide. This summer, I, I spent a lot of time studying the servant uh, mentality of Jesus. And, you know, I, I was quite surprised of really how little I understand Jesus. For example, he made this statement that for years most of us gloss over. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I reflected on those words. Jesus lived the life of a servant when he could have lived the life of a king. And if you watch his social contacts, he identified with the sick, the hungry, the social rejects, the uneducated, blatant sinners. And then he told his disciples an amazing thing. He said that whatever you do for these people, that's how you love me. Well, I reflected on that and I considered this. I said, I wonder if I understand Jesus at all, really, after years of preaching about him and following him. That seems so radical and really so contrary to our life here in Silicon Valley. Servanthood, in fact, as modeled by Jesus, is impossible. We can't even understand it unless our heart's been reborn through trusting Jesus as our Savior. I, uh, let's go into this deeper. Think how Jesus measures greatness in contrast to how we in Silicon Valley determine our personal worth. Icons of this valley include strength, intelligence, 
education, achievement, obviously wealth, beauty, and power, and you could write the rest of the list. And yet listen to Paul describe the saints in Corinth, the ones who were great in God's sight. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong so that no one may boast before him. How many people do you know this morning who are aspiring to be servants, who want that as their passion in life to make their life available for other people's needs? How many do you know? You see, it, it seems the richer and stronger we become, the more difficult it is to assume this calling to be a servant. Maybe that's why Jesus said it's almost impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Impossible unless we know Jesus. Uh, my wife and I babysat a young girl in Malibu years ago, and we now learn that she's a casting uh, director for the movies. And there's an um, article going on about the television series Baywatch. Now, I, I haven't seen that program, but I understand it has a lot to do with bathing suits and beauty. And the standards, it says for recruiting for that program, the standards for physical beauty are so high, it's put in bold type before you even walk in the door to apply no one with any kind of physical defect need apply. And I thought, you know, that's often how the church is viewed. Uh, this is a place to come after you're cleaned up, after you've got your life together. And Jesus says it's just the opposite. Our whole mission as a church, as Christians, is to go out into the byways of the world and find the broken and the beaten and the blemished and the ones with dings and, and sinners and everyone who needs help and you welcome them to the feast. I believe when we become serious about serving others, it's going to demand a revolution in values that are impossible in our own strength apart from Jesus Christ. We cannot live and buck the tide in Silicon Valley in our own strength, in my opinion. But the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian will transplant the servant character of Jesus into us, and that's when big things happen. It's the Spirit in us that will produce the change of heart that will give us Christ's heart, and we'll begin to see people and our purpose in life through His eyes rather than through the eyes of our culture. Think about it. Haven't we all had moments when we desperately wanted to uh, become less self-centered? I've preached on this subject before. You know, I get really excited about it every time. But generous sentiments so often, often by the end of the day, are replaced with preoccupation with our own needs and wants and exhaustion and whatever. We want to do it, but self gets in the way and we get so frustrated we almost do not want to hear another message about it because we just know we've tried too many times and it doesn't happen. And yet the undeniable test that our relationship with Jesus is real, is measured by our capacity to model his self-giving love. I don't think any other behavior on our part, our doctrines, our moralizing or whatever impresses the world out there. But self-giving love is irresistible. And the Bible says if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and truth.
Homer Serbeck, a beloved person in our church family, passed away some time ago. I don't know how many of you knew him. I knew him. And during his memorial service, he was described as a man who early in his life made a decision. Knowing he was going to be blessed with a very good income, he established a standard of living from which he never deviated. He never bought a white shirt except at Sears, and on and on it went. He, he, he maintained a very simple lifestyle. But as his income increased, he met the needs of people so much so that he helped to educate 1,500 students who otherwise could not have gone to college and wore Sears shirts. In his will, just last week, he endowed a chair at Yale Law School from which, through the years, he received the highest esteem as a Christian, generous attorney. And Homer, to me, was just an example of one guy who made a decision early, before he had it all, that he was going to be a channel, not a reservoir. And he lived and died a successful channel, not a reservoir, and touched hundreds of lives. Now, obviously, you're saying, I don't have that kind of wealth, neither do I. That's not the point. All of us have massive resources in comparison to the rest of the world. Jesus has entrusted us with great riches. And we're going to be challenging all of us this year, beginning with this pastor, to make our life a channel rather than a reservoir. And the real issue is, what would make, motivate us to make that change? How can we stop talking about it as we have for years and do it? Well, secondly, I believe the motivation for becoming a servant saints in the text, it's the grace of Jesus that's been lavished on us. I don't know anything else that will motivate us. Grace is something we're going to hear a lot about this year. The text says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pure and simple, to be a Christian means we've been gripped by an unbelievable truth, and that is that Jesus, the Son of God, died for us, died for me. And I've lived a lifetime, and I still don't fully understand that. And I hope we never do. But if we even get into it at all, one response, an involuntary response, has to be, if Jesus did that for me, and he told me that the way I can love him is to love the least of these, my brothers and sisters, then I'm going to go out and serve for one reason alone, not to earn his love, but because I have it, because he died for me, and I can do nothing else. Paul said something amazing. He said, I am your servant. Why? Because I want to be? No. I'm your servant for Jesus' sake. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that as our love for Jesus grows, so does our understanding of his words, that these are really true in contrast to what our culture tries to convince us is true. And that is, if we seek to save our lives, we're going to lose them. But if we'll give ourselves away, we will find them. What a revolution if we listen to that. So much of what we think about is our security, our future, our retirement, our standard of living, our, my, my. And here Jesus is calling us to a revolution of values. So here's my challenge for a new church year. It's our challenge. I want to think about us becoming channels for dispensing the incredible blessings that have been lavished upon this church family. Rather than like the rich fool hoarding our blessings in reservoirs of self-interest that will result in our own impoverishment. What the world calls wise, God said you're foolish if you live as a, as a, as a uh, reservoir. 
Serving others, I would suggest, is the only valid reason for this church being on this corner. We've had articles written about this church. You've probably read them. And one of the things that make me shudder is when this church is referred to as a place where the rich and powerful go. Successful church for successful people. Uh, look at the size of their budget. Look at their numbers. And the only thing that Jesus would want said about us is look at that group of people who will lay down their lives for meeting the needs of the community and the world because somehow Jesus impacted them. It's the only thing that we should covet as a reputation. I, I, I want to make some quick suggestions then of how we might journey toward becoming servants, uh, saints this year rather than reservoirs, how we might become channels and I hope that no matter how many Bible studies you've been through or how many years you've been in this church, you might join me in taking a fresh look at the possibility of changing. And, and here's just some wild suggestions. And I hope you'll add to the list. One, though, is primary. I believe that in order to become a channel rather than a reservoir, we must begin with prayer. The task is too impossible. And I think we need to ask God for supernatural power to break free from our preoccupation with our own needs and agendas. And at that point, let the Spirit free us to be free to serve others. It has to begin with prayer. I don't think it's going to, at least it won't change with me. And then I must suggest that we start with something very small, one person. Perhaps the one person Jesus just plunks into our lives at the office or in the neighborhood. I've been talking with a woman about this sermon and she called me and she said, you know, today I was so busy I didn't have one instant and this woman called me and needed me and I had to drop everything for her and it's hard and I guess it's worth it, but I have to make a daily decision. Am I going to be a channel to serve her or am I going to be a reservoir of staying busy because I'm always going to be busy? This woman was a divine interruption. I read this quote somewhere, interesting people are those who communicate to others that they're interested in them. No one can profoundly care for everybody. Our task is to allow the Lord to give us the particular people who are to be the focus of our concentrated, deep, caring love. Being available to help lift their burdens and give our time and energy and money when it's needed. I just challenge you to accept the challenge say at least God could I begin in a little way this week give me one person I believe he will and that'll be the test are you ready and here's one you might want to think about with me use your personal needs not as an excuse but as a catalyst to serve others I never preach on this subject without someone telling me and sometimes I feel this way myself you know my life is so complex right now I am so full of pain I don't have any, but anything to give anyone. I'm lucky to survive. I want you to think about an alternative. What if you thought of, or even asking God to help you think about using your stress, your illness, your grief, your depression, your pain as a source to minister to somebody else who has a similar need? The people who help us most are ones who are walking our similar path. People with cancer have found that true. People who are going through divorce have found that true. I don't know what you're going through that might be your excuse for not hearing the sermon today. Perhaps you could ask God, well, God, use this. And then there might be some purpose to the complex life I have right now. And then maybe here's where you can get creative. Find some creative ways to express your servanthood. I can't think of them all for you. 
One suggested we become a safe haven for one who just needs a friend because you can keep a confidence and you don't judge them and you can pray with them. What a gift that would be to someone who needs a safe haven. And then our high school has been introduced to this phrase, I'll do that. And, and, and it's the idea of in our workplace or wherever we are during the week, we're going to say, you know, I'll do that when it comes to willingly doing little things that other people feel are too demeaning for them. Such a small thing. And that can infect the whole environment. I'll do that. Or maybe as a family, you're having some struggles. You're wondering about your kids. Have you ever thought of doing something together as a family? Every month, this church is involved in some place here in the community. I think now it's in Bayshore Christian Ministries. It's in your Pioneer. You and your family can go and do something. What a message that is for kids to get out of our own interests and do something together as a family. Or if you're lonely in the church, go on a mission trip. You'll have friends for a lifetime here once you've been somewhere on a mission trip. If you want some more skills in helping others, you can sign up today in the breezeway for the next Contagious Christian class. Hundreds have gone through. In other words, if you're in this church, there's no excuse to say, well, gee, I don't have any resources by which to learn to be a servant. I think this church is rich in resources. What we have to do is get rich in will and rich in discipline. That's going to begin with the pastor. And then finally, remember, in our attempts to serve, we're going to fail. And we're going to have to start again and again. In fact, we've already attempted. And if you're like me, we fail over and over again. In fact, sometimes I wonder, am I ever going to break through uh, free from my selfishness? Because I'm a selfish person. I think most of us are. And our culture affirms that. When I was in junior high, I, if you can believe it, I played the trumpet. And uh, I was part of a pathetic-sounding orchestra. It was really bad. I can't begin to describe uh, our combined efforts at playing music. But you know, my parents came to our concerts, and I can remember them coming after me, uh, up to me afterward. And my, I went by Bud in those days. They said, Bud, you know, we're so proud of your efforts to play <laughs> difficult music. And I, that was an honest statement. But you know, that's all God wants from you today. A willingness to try. Servanthood's impossible. All we can do is make ourselves available and ask the character of Jesus to take over. And we're going to make mistakes. We'll blow it. We'll get tired. We'll be sad we ever started. But you know, we're going to grow with each attempt. Remember, most members of the San Francisco Symphony were at some point in their past part of a pathetic-sounding junior high orchestra, but they dared to struggle so that one day they could play a symphony. And I've been around here for a while, and I believe that our church has been struggling for years to become like Jesus. And our symphony of serving others in Christ's name will be one of the most beautiful things we've ever played. And by the way, it's irresistible, even in a skeptical world. I firmly believe Jesus has strategically placed each one of you in this Bay Area somewhere, and your primary mission is to be a channel through whom his love and his resources can flow to touch a needy person. And that's the best advertisement we can give for the impact Jesus has upon our lives. So I pray many of us will hear the challenge, and this week if you're sitting somewhere and they ask, well, what's going on at Menlo Park these days at, the, at your church? You might say, well, we're learning to be channels rather than reservoirs. And that should open some conversation for you. Let's bow in prayer.
Lord Jesus, we, we want to be like you. At least most of the time we do. And we get so frustrated because the journey is so long. God, make this year through your Holy Spirit the year when we take a giant step toward becoming channels in a world where most people are reservoirs and thus being a magnet to bring many lost, needy people to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.